You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sarah Waters is the author of Tipping the Velvet, Affinity, Fingersmith, and The Night Watch. Her new novel is The Little Stranger. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you. Sarah, as I read through this novel, and, and it struck me that it's really, uh, in many ways, a novel about architecture in all its forms. Hmm. Whether you're architecting <laughs> a, the human character or a big old English country house out in the middle of nowhere. That's interesting you you say that because actually I often think of my books as being like pieces of architecture you know that I sort of I put together I have a vision of something at the start and then I put together you piece together slowly this this structure that ultimately somebody else can can kind of wander inside and hopefully notice odd details and things so it's a very nice um, way to put it thank you but yes in this novel in particular I suppose certainly obviously the the house it's dominated by Hundreds Hall, this this Gothic. No, it's not. It's not really Gothic. It's a Georgian house, um, but it, uh, it becomes a rather spooky sort of house as the novel proceeds. And that, for me, was became almost a character in its own right. I think for me in the novel, um, and I was certainly very interested in 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 how to evoke the house. I visited a lot of Georgian houses while I was working on the book. And became very interested, you know, in how you would live in that on that kind of scale, large rooms. Um, echoing spaces, you know, that kind of thing. Well, it struck me there's a, a history, in a sense, of English country house novels. Could you talk about that? Did that? Did you go through any of those? Um, I was certainly aware of them. Um, not least in in the in you know the sort of murder novel, the the country house murder, I suppose, story. I was I I was mindful of because this is a novel. It's not a it's not a classic whodunit, but there's certainly a sense of intrigue and the, 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 there's a family living in the house who are kind of targeted one by one by, by something very malign. So in that sense, I, you know, I was quite happy for my readers to, to be remembering the country house murder novel and thinking about you know, who might have, what might be behind it all. Um, but I was also thinking, I suppose, of, you know, it's set, in, it's set just after the Second World War in, 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 in a rural setting, which was a departure for me because my books are normally set in London. Um, and I think everybody in in the UK is very familiar with the idea of of the country house with its garden and I mean the novel actually starts with its narrator Dr Faraday remembering his first visit to Hundreds Hall as a, as a child um, when the hall was thrown open for an, for a fate for the for the local people um, and that's a sort of classic motif I suppose of of um, old rural life in Britain you know you'd have you'd have a community that was dominated by the big house with with its family who'd been there for generations being maintained by by a pool of local people people. It's a really interesting vision of England and London, and I think in a sense of the world at large as things kind of crumbled after World War II. Mm. Could you talk about the sense of what had happened to England during the war and and the way it echoes throughout this book, especially in the way the country houses decayed afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. That was one one of my starting points for the book, really. You know, I wrote Started the Little Stranger after I'd finished the Night Watch, which is set in a, in almost exactly the same period. At least it starts the Night Watch starts in 1947, and then moves back into the war. Um, the Little Stranger is set 47 to 48 because I'd become really interested in 
what the war had done to British life, and in particular the impact it had had on the British class system, which, as you know, has always been a very rigid one, but was you know in a, in a process of change throughout the 20th century. And I think the Second World War did an awful lot to shake it up. Um, you know, before the war, it had been very commonplace for working class people, to, working class people, to go into domestic service. I mean, my own grandparents did this. But of course, the war took people out of service and put them into 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 the armed forces or into factories. And when the war ended, they never really went back uh, in the same way. They'd had a taste of independence. There were better jobs for them after the war in the new industries or whatever. And I think mo- most importantly, they had a high, you know, better sense of better expectations after the war. They wanted better housing, better schooling for their kids, a better health service. They voted in a Labour government. Um, you know, they booted out Churchill, who'd seen Britain through the war. But um, as soon as the war ended, out he went and in came a Labour government that was very definitely on the side of working people. So for working people, this was great. But of course, for the families they'd been maintaining over the years, the upper middle class families, the landed gentry, the aristocrats, th- this was a time of the collapse of an old order. Um, so so the family at the heart of the little stranger, the heirs, you know, for me, they were representative of a whole class of people who'd inherited these great big houses, these great big estates that they could suddenly no longer maintain. They didn't have the incomes that they'd once had. They didn't have working people anymore on their side. Um, And if you look at the history of English country houses, this period, the 40s and the 50s, was a time when lots and lots were were lost, either literally lost because they just crumbled away or they were turned into hotels. You know, they were sold, they were turned into schools or flats. The land was broken up. Um, so that's that's behind the novel for me. That's 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 exactly the kind of thing I wanted to highlight. But what I did in the novel was to give it this sort of extra supernatural twist um, to to make the menace that the the gentry are feeling um, into something a bit more palpable. That's one of the great um, effects of using when you bring the supernatural toolkit. It allows you to externalize. Uh, feelings, forces, emotions, uh, thoughts, ideas that are otherwise hidden. Yes. And that's one of the great things about the haunted house. I think that's what the haunted house does. You know, it's a it's a, a concretization of anxiety and guilt and things lurking in the shadows, the return of the repressed, you know. So I've always been drawn to... Um, gothic structures. I mean, my second novel, Affinity, is set in a women's prison in a great, in what was a real prison, Millbank Prison, in um, in London in the nineteenth century. A great big gothic, strange structure. And I think lots of my novels have gothic touches, but this The Little Stranger is the one where I saw an opportunity to really go for, you know, to, to have a proper haunted house, very much in the tradition of of the English ghost story. Well, well, tell us a little bit about the family mm-hmm. whom you've populated, who lives in this house. Yes. And, and also about that kind of, this idea, I think that Americans find this really hard to, to grasp, that somebody could own so much property, yet essentially they were paupers. Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, the the family of the Ayres, there's Mrs. Ayres, the elderly mother, and um, her grown-up son and daughter, Roderick, who's been through the war as a pilot and has come back from war injured and probably with something we would call post-traumatic stress disorder you know um and he's struggling to he's the heir he's 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 his role in the past would have been to take on the running of the house and the estate um of course there's no there's no longer really an estate to run they have one single farm that's struggling the house is falling apart they've no money to fix it so you know there's there's all these pressures on him his sister caroline um is 
um, a plain, clever woman um, at a time when, you know, to be plain and clever was a, was a huge disadvantage <laughs> for women. Is there any a time? <laughs> well, but I think, yeah, I think there's something about this. The, yeah, you're right. But there's something about the 40s, I think, that was very demanding of women. And for Caroline, she's 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 escaped from the hall in the war like her brother has. She's been in, in the armed services, but she's been brought back by her mother to look after her injured brother. And she's still there. And she, like like Roderick, her brother, feels this responsibility towards the house. She knows, I mean, she's explicit about this. She, she knows how lucky, that, how terribly lucky they are to have inherited this amazing property. And the sense of responsibility that brings with it, you know, they want to kind of do their bit to keep the house up. They're very mindful that families like them would once have had a key role in the local community. And suddenly without that role, they're rather functionless and they're, they're kind of in limbo. And the obvious thing to do is for them to sell up and, and, and get out, you know, as lots of families in their situation would have done at the time. But they doggedly stay on. Um, in the face of this of this deteriorating house, and yes, actually about a classic British scenario, and I'm sure actually, this is the triumph of class in Britain. This is the triumph of class over economics, because even now I suspect there's lots and lots of impoverished gentry people who who are clinging on to their status with with nothing to bolster it except except the, the, their family history. You know, um, one of the um, a great source of um, research for me for this book was a writer called James Lees Milne, who kept wonderful diaries in the 40s and 50s and onwards. And he worked for the National Trust, and his job was to go around looking at houses that people were offering to the National Trust, because this was one way in which families could you know, keep the house going. They'd, they'd, they'd hand it over to the trust, who would then open it up to the public. They'd maybe carry on living on in a portion of the house. But he was—he just goes all over the country visiting these, you know, these old aristocrats who were living in the the butler's pantry, you know, eating beans on toast <laughs> with all the rooms shut up, and the house just falling to bits around them. It was very, very common in this period. Now, tell us a little bit about your narrator because he's an example of another side of of class that was changing after the war. Yes, Dr. Faraday, my narrator, who funnily enough, I'd, I'd imagined at the start that he would be a middle-class man himself, a thoroughly middle-class man, a friend of the family, I thought, telling us the story of their decline in a sort of appalled, um, helpless kind of way. And he does kind of have that role, but I, I made a decision to change his class background because I thought it made things a bit more interesting. So he is now a, he's a working-class boy whose mother actually has had once been a servant at the hall, so um, he he remembers visiting it as a child when it was in its still in its glory. Goes back to it when the novel open opens um, as an adult doctor to to treat the last remaining servant, and um, you know he's been put through medical school on grants and scholarships. Um, he's alienated from his working class background. He's not quite at ease in a middle class setting, so he has this complicated relationship with the hall. He, he admires it, he sort of envies it, he slightly resents it, in a kind of residual class resentment. Um, so that, that emerged for me as I wrote the book and, me, and made him, as I say, for me, a far more interesting character and not necessarily um, an entirely reliable one, I guess, in what he's telling us about the family. No, no, and, and that's a very interesting aspect of the book is to sort out through his perceptions how much of this is reportage and how much of it is his imagination or mm. his or his inclinations could you talk about you said you that you kind of had one vision of the book when you started and you changed it could you talk about architecting this this mm. book actually of all my novels this was a fairly straightforward one to write once I'd made my basic decisions anyway I mean I started 
you know, way back in the process with a sense of these these changes in, in the class system, the country house, the family. You know, it was pretty nebulous at that point. And then the element of the supernatural came in, and that's when I thought, yes, this could be a haunted house novel. Um, and then I, I knew it was going to be pretty much about the family's decline. I mean, I'm not giving too much away here. So it was. It, it's a very straightforward narrative in lots of ways <laughs> um, although not in some ways but you know it's it's the doctor is telling us a story and he's telling us a story that at one remove in a sense he he never witnesses anything supernatural himself he has the supernatural events reported to him which he then reports to us um, he's continually trying to cling on to a rational explanation for things although we might want to see past that and and make a different interpretation um, so it's the, te- the, the technical challenges for me were in sorting out his voice and in in, a, in opening up, I suppose, in opening up those possibilities for us to read things slightly differently from him. Now, you mentioned some of the research you did with the Milne Diaries. Um, you also did uh, some research into a guy named Frederick Myers, and I presume at the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research. I, I found some of that stuff really fascinating. Yeah, so do I. Podmore and Myers, they... Um, they were doing work um, at the beginning of the 20th century into psychic phenomena, and they were scientists, you know, taking a very scientific approach to to those things, as as lots of people were in those days, you know, really trying to discover whether there was a a, a logical scientific explanation for things like spiritualism, which was of course was was um, very popular in the Victorian Edwardian periods um, and very appealing. I suppose after the with the decline of formal religion, it was this was a, a you know a kind of um, a great comfort for people, the idea that we might be able to, to speak to loved ones um, after death. So Pod, Podmore and Myers looked at things like this and they looked at all sorts of supernatural phenomena, including you know, hauntings and the idea... One thing that I was interested in was they spent a long time looking at the, the, the phenomenon in which you know, you, your own double appears to somebody else somewhere or somebody sees a vision of their son and, and then it turns out that exactly at that moment he died you know, hundreds of miles away. It's a, it's a recurring phenomenon um, in different cultures. And they posited that you know, at times of stress or maybe even just at random times, something within us could sort of become split off and kind of travel through the ether and, and manifest itself somewhere else, if there was a sort of sympathy, I suppose, between you and, and the receiving person. Um, so this becomes one of the informing ideas of the book. Um, I mean, the doctor, Dr. Faraday, I suppose, is quite keen. I mean, this is about as rational as he can, you know, as he can pursue it in the, in the novel. He, um, it's his explanation for, for the supernatural things, that there might be something that's become loose from somebody, become detached from the psyche and is sort of ro- roaming the house, doing these malevolent things. That's, that's one of the theories anyway. Now, one of the things about casting your character as a doctor mm-hmm. is because like a doctor, or like a private eye, a doctor has access to society at all levels. Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the key things for me in in making him a doctor. He was very mobile, both geographically and, as you say, across the classes. And I needed him to be able to come and go from the hall, um, not as a friend, because, you know, that's part of his slightly tense relationship with the hall. It takes him a while to become a proper friend to the family. Um, But I needed him to be going there, seeing things, reporting them back to us. So it made perfect sense to me to make him a doctor I think you know and um, the fact that doctors do 
get are privy to information um, in people's lives that that not everybody is. Yeah, it just made lots and lots of sense. And actually, that's really why I then made him a male narrator because all my other narrators in all my other books have been female. Um, but of course, there were women doctors in the forties. But I thought if I made him a woman doctor, it it might throw up other sorts of issues. And I just thought let's just keep it simple and and make him um, a classic male country doctor and take it from there. The the conflict at the heart of this novel is, as you said earlier, the class the, the class wars between the aristocrats who at one point, um, <clears throat> one of the heiresses says, we're all a little mad. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a, I think that's still a perception of, of the British aristocratic class today. And, and the, the rise of the labor government and a really important thing that kind of looming in the background of this novel is the in, in introduction of national health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which came in in the UK in June 1948. And the, the doctor is very mindful that, that it's approaching. And one thing that really fascinated me and that I hadn't really anticipated when I started my research was that most GPs in the 40s were deeply opposed to the introduction of the NHS. I mean, they, they, you know, they were sympathetic to its aims. Um, but of course, before the NHS, they were businessmen. They were, they were small businessmen in competition with each other. And could do very nicely out of their paying patients and didn't really want to to give that up, you know, and they were suspicious of centralised control. Um, They felt they had their special relationships with their patients, which, you know, indeed they did. Um, They they were just they were deeply suspicious of the NHS. And And Dr. Faraday talks about this quite often, that he fears it's going to be the end of his end of his career. Um. So yeah, for me that was just one more one more layer of anxiety for him, but also you know another layer of of what's going on in, in Britain at the time and the very um, radical changes, social changes that were occurring exactly at this period. Uh, Faraday is such such an interesting character. He was named, I'm guessing, after Michael Faraday, who inter- who discovered induction that he uses on. Well, that's a funny thing because actually, no, I just na- I I named him Faraday when I planned for him to be this this very middle class man because I, Faraday sounded appropriate. And then I decided, no, I would make him. You know, I'd give him this working class background. I thought Faraday doesn't sound quite right. But by then, I was attached to the name. He was he was Dr. Faraday to me. I couldn't call him anything else. And then only then did he. You know, one of the reasons he's able to go backwards and forwards to the hall is that he offers to help Roderick with his injured leg and he offers to use um, electric therapy on his leg. And it was only as I was researching the that style of therapy that I realised, oh, of course, it's, it was actually called Faradism. And I, and I really thought, oh, no, you know, this is crazy. Everybody's going to think I'm meaning some something terribly symbolic here. But in fact, um, it was that was a kind of a coincidence. Um but I, as I say, I just felt so attached to his name, I couldn't surrender. It was too late. He had to, he had to stay, Doctor Faraday. His um, perception of the of the hall is really interesting and complex, and it changes. And it goes. One of the things you do is um, with his perception of the hall is kind of whip us around in time. Mm-hmm. Between his perceptions as a child, we know that those inform his perceptions now. And as an author, I think you're very skilled in giving us information and in a manner that we assimilate it, but we don't realize just how important it is. Could you talk about, as an author, kind of uh, salting your work early on so that <laughs> later on we're going, aha? Yes. Well, I guess every author tries to do that, especially an author like me whose novels do tend to be fair, you know, fairly plot-based and interested in 
revelations and twists, even even very gentle ones. Um, so certainly I'm very mindful that I need to be, salting is a very good phrase, I like that, but I need to be, you know, planting seeds, I suppose, planting bits of information. And it's terribly hard to judge that. It's very hard because, of course, I know the whole thing. <laughs> and if I do plant a little seed, to me, it, it leaps off the page. Um, in fact, I had problems with this novel because I, I think early readers found found things a bit too embedded. You know, it's a pretty subtle novel, I think. Um, you have to be, you have to read it kind of quite sensitively. And I, I had to, I had to work to make sure that those, that the, the details were right. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you you had that response to it. That sounds exactly, that sounds like my perfect reading, actually. Well, one thing I really loved about this book is you tell us kind of, we get the feeling early on that we know it's going to be a ghost story, and we know there's going to be some romantic elements in there. And, and could you talk about creating those expectations in a reader and then rewarding them and then maybe twisting the knife a little bit? <laughs> because when we when you say, when we know this is a ghost story, and we damn well want to see a ghost, and we know there's a romance, and we damn well want to see a romance too. <laughs> but it's funny, you know, because if somebody picked up this book, they only know it's going to be a ghost story because it says so on the back of the back of the back mm-hmm. of the jacket and sure. that's a funny thing for authors because you don't you don't necessarily plan with that in mind i mean mm-hmm. if you read if you if you were to pick up this book knowing nothing about it i think it would take you a, a good few chapters to realize there's something spooky going on it's got a very gentle start it's very much in the spirit of of the country house story it's got that sort of slow pace accretion of detail getting to know the family then Bang! You know, there's a dramatic incident in chapter three um, that then leads to a series of increasingly odd and sinister events. Um, but I deliberately held back from from you know having too much that's too obviously supernatural early on. I wanted there to be competing explanations. Is it that Roderick's going mad? You know, as the Doctor thinks. I wanted there to be this ambiguity about what was happening. I liked that. Um, so that I suppose that was one issue for me, maybe, yeah, that gentle start and the slow build-up of information. And as for the romance, that's a funny thing too. That that came quite late on. I hadn't planned for that to happen at all. The romance is between Faraday and Caroline, um, the daughter of the house. And in the in the first few chapters I was writing them, I could tell that they liked each other. You know, Caroline's a very um, interesting, independent, but, but and quite bristly, but quite likable character, I think. And she and the Doctor developed this slightly bantering friendship, and I liked that. But it wasn't until I was halfway through writing the book that I wrote a scene where he takes her to a dance, in, purely in a spirit of friendship. And then I suddenly thought, oh, there's something else going on between them here. And I just let it happen, and they developed this this romance, a rather awkward romance, I have to say, a rather fatal romance in lots of ways um but once that happened i could then go back and and prefigure it so the things that a reader that you might have picked up about the foreshadowings of the romance actually came in quite late funnily enough i mean again this is all the architecture business isn't it you know it's about for me a lot of writing is rewriting so i'll 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 build a kind of skeletal structure in the first place and then go back over it and rearrange it and add things as i realize what should be there and that can sometimes be very late in the process the framework then the then the walls then the stucco plaster shelves yes and sometimes quite serious replanning you know at a late stage removing a wing and putting it somewhere (laughs) else (laughs) and knocking a window through there are lots of uh, interesting kind of uh, literary references in this book. Could mm-hmm. you talk about uh, putting those in? And, and I think they, it, it makes it for a reader really enjoyable to, to 
get kind of a, a echo of the literary history of this book. Yes, and that's something that always happens in my novels, and it's um, kind of just sort of happens with my writing. I think because part of my research for for any book is to immerse myself in the literature of of that period to try and capture the the voices of the period, the the, the idiom of the period. Um, and because obviously I'm a big reader myself, I sort of carry around a fund of fund of literary motifs and references that do just sort of work their way in. So Dickens, for example, obviously with my first three novels, they all had a 19th century setting. They became kind of increasingly Dickensian in lots of ways. And there are echoes of, say, Great Expectations, which is one of my favourite novels. I think it's a wonderful novel. It does sort of creep into my books. And in fact, there's a, it makes a little appearance in The Little Stranger. There's a little reference to Miss Havisham early on. Um, but yes, other things creep in. There's sort of slight echo of Poe, of yeah, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. The, the, fall, the Fall of the House of Usher and the Yellow Wallpaper. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, that's partly inevitable, I think, when you're writing a haunted house novel in this kind of way, because the genre is such a strong one and has its own conventions. And for me... I wanted to, to, to try and test those conventions to a certain extent, but I was also very happy to to use them and to enjoy them. Um, so I I liked the fact that you know that that that, that the house became resonant of of other haunted houses, whether it's Miss Havisham's house or or the House of Usher or or whatever. I I I was very happy to just let that happen. One of the things that struck me about this novel was that it has a very timeless feeling. I mean, without. If you just went in and did a global substitution of buggies for the cars, you could it could be set in the Victorian era. And if you just went in and gave people cell phones, <laughs> it could be set now. Could you talk about creating that kind of timeless feeling? So it, it's a book you could read um, and, and it, feel the same about, I think, no matter when you read it. Yes, I think you're right. I think of all my novels, it's the one that's least attached to its historical period. Although at the same time, of course, the historical period, for me anyway, was crucial because it is, the novel is set exactly at this time of social change mm -hmm. and the, the class tensions, you know, completely completely inform the, the the supernatural element. So it was it was crucial for me that it was set right there and then. But yes, of all of all my novels, it's the one I had to do least research for, in a sense. I mean, I'd done a lot of research into the forties for the Night Watch, so I had a very good grounding in the period. But the moment you enter the house, the moment you enter the house with with Faraday, you are becoming slightly detached from history, and I was very aware of that, and that was interesting to see that happening. And I liked it, and it felt appropriate. You know, that the house is a Georgian one, but, of course, it's been altered over the years. It's got Victorian additions, and I liked the fact that, like any old structure, it's kind of a palimpsest of, of, of different eras, and, you know, the family's been there for generations, and they've all made their little changes to it. Um, so that, that adds, I suppose, to its slightly dislocated feel. Um yeah. Could it really be set in the present? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. we, we, those class yeah. tensions haven't really gone no. away, have they? And no, you're right. Tell us a little bit about the the class system over in Britain. We pretend we don't have that here in America, at mm. least. I think that we actually do. It's just we don't want to... It makes us too uncomfortable to talk about it. But you British seem to be more comfortable talking about it. It, yeah, it permeates British life, I, I have to say. And I think everybody's very, very mindful of class. I mean, the moment you meet somebody in Britain, I think you very, very quickly suss out their backgrounds, 
and it's and it is very much about background. I mean, that's the classic thing people say about the difference, isn't it, between Britain and America? That here it's all about where you are now, what what you've made yourself. But in Britain, it's very much about where you came from. Um, and you know, I think it's the whole class issue is a, is a spectrum of things, really. You know, at its most benign, it's just about community and tradition and and the sort of the you know what you identify with and style and the way you speak and you know as I say quite benign things like that but the other aspect of it you know is that of course it's still a terribly pernicious system in which through which people who you know who are born into a certain stratum will have will have enormous opportunities and Enti- you know, a sense of entitlement in a way that that some other people won't. Um, but you know that that's got to be true of the U.S. Um, too, isn't it? Oh yeah, no, it's yeah. it's very true. But we don't talk about it in that yes. way. Yes, yes, interesting. I sometimes think that British people don't talk about anything else. But <laughs> <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about some of the motifs, the supernatural motifs you bring in here, and and maybe some of the research you did in that? Because we have things moving, things disappearing, mm. and um, burn marks on the ceiling, really fascinating. And there is an absolutely terrifying uh, mirror in this book. It's it's a really, it's a very disturbing moment. Mm. Well, yes, I I did lots of research into hauntings and poltergeist activity for mm-hmm. this novel. Um, and I, I looked at books that were available at the time that around the 40s into the 50s a bit or earlier just to see how people felt about um the supernatural you know in in, at this time but the details that i found um i mean poltergeist cases fascinated me um you know they're sort of they they kind of cross history but there there do seem to be these constants in them that they're often it's often women um or girls um but adolescent not, girls. Not always. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's the sort of, that's rather the stereotype. It's not always adolescent girls, but certainly it's often women. It's often sort of vulnerable or aggrieved people. It's often, it's very much takes place within a household. And it's interesting to speculate on, you know, the household politics behind it. It's often a family. And again, it's interesting to, to look beyond what's going on and think about the family and family dynamics. Um, it seems to me that you know it's often it's often people who are feeling um aggrieved and have no other outlet for their for their for their rage or whatever except for smashing things up or i mean things get smashed up you know around them um it's often domestic stuff that gets smashed up which i think again is interesting in that it's sometimes women at the focus as if as if the women have got this incredible rage inside them that's got to come out somewhere um or children get hurt or there's a lot of self-harming in poltergeist cases which um is sort of fascinating and and puzzling and you know and worrying a lot of women getting bite marks or scratches or their hair pulled out so Yes, I tried to. I tried to keep all the manifestations in Hundreds Hall. I tried to keep those to the kinds of material I was finding in my research. So, as you say, but you know, burn marks often appear in poltergeist activity. Things get smashed. There's scratching sounds, pattering sounds. Things move by themselves, which is what you were talking about with the mirror. So, yeah, I, I, I basically I had a range of. Mm, phenomena to to draw on, and I and I tried to use the ones that were most appropriate to to each of the characters they surround. One of the things I think you do pretty well is is to create an atmosphere of kind of uh, subtle terror by 
taking normal things and making them appear wrong. This is something that uh, Arthur Machen did did very well. He was a, a supernatural uh, uh-huh. writer, and, and one of the his theory was that the the most frightening things were things that were weren't necessarily uh, aggressive, but things that were just out of place. And, I, and that's what I thought about the mirror was was mm-hmm. very. It was not behaving like a mirror should. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, this is the it's the the. The German word unheimlich is that right? Unhomely mm-hmm. for uncanny. Uh, uncanny, exactly. I think, but that that sense of unhomely, you're right. Mm-hmm. It's things not doing what they should, and I mean the the, the thing with the mirror is maybe I should explain. Roderick sees a, a shaving mirror kind of moving by itself, and I found that idea very deeply disturbing. I mean, he's completely freaked out by it, as I think I would be too. <laughs> um, and in fact, I just discovered recently there's a term called ontological shock for people who see things like UFOs um, because they're so shaken up by it, you know, that they, they go into a state, literally go into a state of shock because it, it doesn't match our our sense of the universe, our things, our sense of, you know, things being where they should be. So, yes, that's that's deep at the heart, I think, of what's going on at the Hundreds Hall. It's just things being slightly wrong, slightly out of place. So it's not it's not big shocks, but it's this subtle, subtle wrongness. And, and this is at, it's said in a time, too, when we're just try, starting to understand the invisible energies of the universe, that, you know, things like atom bombs and electricity and radar, all this stuff was brand new. And because we could be, we had to believe in atom bombs and radar, the, the evidence was right there, this Society for Psychic Research just seemed like a natural extension of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, something similar had happened in the Victorian period around um, communications, you know, say the telegraph was developed and telephones were developed. And so the idea that you might speak to somebody in the afterlife suddenly seemed not that that strange. It was almost an extension of of these marvels of science, electricity that that were becoming commonplace in that period. And yes, you're absolutely right. I think after the Second World War, what there was, of course, was a tremendous sense of anxiety around things like the atomic bomb and the, just the horrors of the Second World War. People had found out about the death camps in the Nazi Germany, and there was there was a deep sense that the war had unleashed um, something unpleasant in the world, in people, an aggression. This this crops up a lot in fiction and diaries from the period. And somebody like Harry Price, who was a ghost, a sort of ghostbuster from the um, 1940s, you know, he sort of writes explicitly about poltergeists and how, in a sense, um, the war has been one great big poltergeist smashing things up, you know, this sort of malevolent force sort of wreaking havoc across the world. So I was very mindful of that too, definitely, that people might have been more susceptible to the idea of 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 malevolence breaking loose um, because they just lived through this, this period of trauma and upheaval. One of the things you do is to move the plot through the shifting perception of Dr. Faraday. <clears throat> his his perspective becomes an element of plot. And one of the things, the, the highlights of that are when somebody will experience uh, something that looks to the reader when the, the Ms. Ayers or Carolyn sees something that clearly looks pretty darn supernatural. And yet Faraday's right there and he's just bang, bang, bang. He's got it rationalized pretty quickly all the time. Could you talk about creating that balance between showing the reader something that looks pretty inexplicable and then having Dr. Explicable show up to, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Exposition show up yeah. to <laughs> expose it? Yes. 
Yes, well, that is one element of, of the fact that he's filtering the information to us, I suppose, that, you know, he is Mr. Rational. He's, he's, he's very heavily invested in his own medical status. So I suppose that's one reason he wants to hang on um, to rationality. He also has his own agenda for the house. That's another thing, mm-hmm. you know. He sees Caroline there struggling to hold it together. Um, they have a loose arrangement to be married at this point. He's He wants, he wants to, he, he thinks he can sort the house out, you know. He sees Caroline, her mother, and, and a couple of female servants there, and to them, they look like hysterical women. You know, one thing is suggesting another. The servants' bells start ringing by themselves. Well, that's no surprise to him in a house where the roof is falling apart and, you know, the walls are shifting by themselves because the structure is literally unsafe. So, um, yeah, he, he's, he's got his own take on things. Um, and he has a very conflicted idea within himself about his perceptions of class. He's feels on both sides of the of the matter. He he wants to break the barriers, but he also wants to keep them very firm. Yes, yes. In lots of ways, he's he's deeply conservative. You know, he's broken out of his working class background, which I, which should make him. You know, which should give him a kind of um, place, a very mobile sort of place in, in across the classes. But in fact, I think he's he's so uneasy with his own um, his own status that he he wants. He wants, you know, a role in the social system that, that in a very conservative kind of way. Um, so for him, the house, even though it's falling apart, represents this this solid kind of gentry life that um, as much as he kind of resents it on one level, um, he desperately wants it. One of the, the themes and motifs of this novel is decay. Things... <laughs> Things just get worse all the way through. <laughs> Could you talk about, like, it seems like you almost infect your own novel with a kind of dry rot. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it, yes. Yeah, I knew that right from the start. I knew it was just going to be one bad thing leading to another. And I did worry about whether the, that would just be too much for a reader, um, whether it would be too gloomy, whether it would be become monotonous. You know, it's just like, oh, God, here's another... Here's another awful thing happening now, um, which is one of the reasons I think that I did want the Doctor to be this tempering voice between the, the the incidents themselves and us. You know that he's imposing a more calm kind of um, rational structure on things. Um, but yes, it's infection. Yeah, infection and decay. You're right. That's right there at the heart of the book. Now. English country house novels have a kind of there are certain kind of scenes that seem tend to crop up in these and one of these is the party scene. And you you have the party scene, don't you? I do. <laughs> and it's a it's not a happy party. <laughs> it's not. No. No. This is when I mean ironically as a result of um the heirs is feeling a little more secure near the start of the novel they've they've got a teenage servant, Betty, which is why the doctor's there in the first place. He goes out to treat Betty. What um the beginning of the book um they've got betty they've you know made friends with him they're feeling a bit more um like their old selves so they decide to throw a party for a visitor for a, lo- a family who's moved into the area the baker hides who are completely different from the heirs is because they've moved up from london they're very urbane and they're they're posh but they're not landed they don't have the responsibilities and the burdens of of landed life, which is what's dragging the heirs down, really. This this you know this place in the community that they can't sustain. The Baker Hides just sort of swan into Warwickshire, 
And so the Inveses, uh, the Ayreses invite them over, and yeah, it's a it's a bit catastrophic that party, um, but also is instrumental in securing the doctor's role more firmly in the house because there's a dramatic incident in which he he kind of saves the day in a sense for the family. One of the ways I think you keep this moving novel moving and makes it uh, so eminently readable is that you employ. British banter. It's a very certain kind of a dialogue. And could you talk about that dialogue and creating that dialogue as a factor of the point in history when it occurs? Mm. Well, I think that's a pretty, has to be a pretty intuitive thing, you know, taking on the voices of a period like that. It's always something I've enjoyed doing or enjoyed letting happen. It's always something I, it's, that's been a big intention of mine with each of the books I've well, obviously, especially the ones with the first-person narrator, I've I've very much wanted to try and capture a sense of the of the voice a, a voice of the time of its time. Um, moving to the forties was was lots of fun, um, really, because the the novels and the films of the period are they have this they do often have these sort of clipped bantering exchanges between people, often between men and women. So it was um, it was great fun to have my characters take that on and. Of course, I now can't think of any examples of it, but you know, just um, yeah, it was for me. It was a way of, of bringing the characters alive, giving them individual voice voices that were individual, but also very much of their class and period. Now, having employed the supernatural in in this novel, um, you're still primarily uh, the way you do this. It's not doesn't read like a genre fiction, but I'm wondering if this is a device that you may consider using again in the future. Mm. Well, I certainly found it very satisfying with The Little Stranger, um, giving vent, I suppose, to my all my, my lingering interest in the Gothic and my, my attachment to the genre. Um, and it's it's made me still interested in the idea of hauntings, you know, the different forms that the hauntings can take, what they might mean about us, what you know, how complicit we might be in those hauntings, their relationship with guilt and fear and anxiety. I, these things still really, really interest me. So, yes, I would like to think I, I'll write another sort of ghost story in the future. Maybe one in the present day would be would be a real um, a real challenge. Now you're not known for writing novels set in the present day. I, mm. That's that's an in, why why don't you write novels set in the present day? Yeah, well, I've you know my way into fiction was was through thinking about the past. I started writing fiction after I did a PhD thesis that was that was on historical fiction, and I was very interested in how we um, reinvent the past every time we write about it, and how. Um, you know how the Victorians have changed over the years. They used to be seen as rather prissy and stuffy, and now when we write about them, we're more interested in their underworlds. And so they're you know they're all taking drugs and having sex and you know having gay sex in <laughs> in the novels about them now. And they'll they'll change again, you know, in 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 the future. So I was interested in all that kind of thing, and that's what took me to writing fiction. And each of my novels has sort of grown out of the one before it. So I met I, even when I made the the move to the forties after Fingersmith. Um, I think I still took, you know, very, very much my own concerns to the period, and it was it was just an, you know, another exercise in 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 trying to bring a period to life. And obviously, the Night Watch led to the Little Stranger very clearly. And I think I'll stay with the historical setting for now. I'm still very interested in, in the past, in the difference of the past. You know, the fact that you only have to go back. I mean, what you know, 
back to the 1940s, it's 60 years, and, le- and yet it's a, a radically different cultural landscape. You know, the relationships between the sexes are different. Ideas about gender and sexuality and ethnicity are, are very different, and that really excites me. I like trying to, to um, capture that feeling of difference. I think a good historical novelist transports their reader in, in, into, into a landscape that really is utterly different from their own. But um, I'm also interested in storytelling and in how we tell stories. Um, so it might be that um, I'll, I'll come into the present one day if the right kind of story comes along. Well, it interests me what you said, that there we have different perceptions of the Victorians. And I, I never really thought of historical fiction this way, but science fiction is often said to, no matter how far in the future it's set, it's always about the present. And I, and I guess that's the same is true of historical fiction, yes, isn't it? definitely. I think... Um, just as if you if you can picture a historical film or a, a period drama from TV, you know they always look kind of if it's made in the seventies, you know the women always look a bit seventies, their eyebrows are just a bit too thin or something. You can date things like that very very precisely, um, and the same is true of historical fiction. I think it often tells you um, as much, if not more, about the period in which it was written than about um, the period it, it purports to be about, and that's um, that's always fascinated me. I've been speaking with Sarah Waters. Her new novel is The Little Stranger. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.